verse 18 from uh, May 4th, which was Friday last week. And uh, we're in a very interesting portion of Scripture, uh, ending the book of Judges, Judges, going through the book of Ruth and starting in 1 Samuel. This 400-year period between entrance into the Promised Land and the first king of Israel, which was uh, Saul, was the period of the Judges. And uh, if you're up with your reading right now, we're getting into uh, the beginning of the ministry of the prophet Samuel, the prophet and priest Samuel. And uh, very, very interesting. And we just finished reading the book of Ruth. uh, How that this non-Hebrew was brought into the lineage of Jesus Christ because she was dedicated and committed and loyal to uh, her mother-in-law. Uh, but from last from uh, last week on Friday, uh, ending in the book of Judges, very, very interesting passage, very uh, um, gruesome package uh, passage of Scripture. In Judges chapter number 20 and verse 18, Judges 20 and 18 says, Before the battle... The Israelites went to Bethel and asked God which tribe should go first to attack the people of Benjamin. And the Lord answered, Judah is to go first. Of all the tribes of Israel that are going to attack Benjamin, as they gathered together and tried to determine who's going to lead the assault, God said to them, let Judah go first. Now, there may be some, if, if you're not reading through and you haven't read this story, it may make you curious as you read and say, why would Judah be attack, attacking Benjamin? And why would the tribes of Israel be attack, attacking Benjamin when Benjamin is, in fact, one of the tribes of Israel as well? And uh, the story that we'll tell you briefly is uh, what precipitated this necessary cleansing or purging or uh, punitive action against um, one of the tribes of Israel that had picked up Canaanite practices, carnality, sexual perversion, and uh, how that uh, there was a cleansing of this corruption within Israel. But the key point was they asked God. The Israelites went and asked God in this place called Bethel, which is an ancient place that goes all the way back to their forefathers, um, uh, Jacob. And uh, said, which tribe should lead the attack against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord God answered, send Judah up first. There's a song that we sing around here in the church uh, that says, send up Judah. Anybody like that song that we sing? It's, it's a great song. It's got a good beat and uh, it's uh, uh, very exciting. Some people may wonder, what is the meaning of send up Judah? And maybe, well, yeah, I know Judah means praise. We need to send up praise. What's the significance of that? And I want to take a few moments tonight, uh, just a few moments. We'll be finished by 9 o'clock. I want to talk to you uh, on this subject. Send up Judah, or prevailing praise. Prevailing praise. And we sang a little earlier, it's amazing what praising can do. And this is true. I know it's a nice little rhyme. And uh, they say, that's a cool song because it rhymes. It's amazing what praising can do. But it is, it's fascinating, the power that we have through our praise and our worship. And we want to talk about that. God bless you. You may be seated. Now this story that uh, uh, precipitated 
This necessary purging and cleansing and punitive action against Benjamin started when uh, during the uh, uh, period of, of Judges. And as you look through the book of Judges, there's one thing that becomes very apparent and very clear. And that is, everyone listening, that is, even though the children of Israel have entered into the promised land, which in, a, in an allegorical sense or in a uh, uh, spiritual sense, a typology, it's like the church entering, us entering into revival, entering into the place where God wants us to be. Even though they entered into the promised land, we see that there is still the presence of conflict. Everyone say conflict. Uh, sometimes in our mind, the ideal situation would be a situation where there is no longer any drama or conflict, where all of that has been taken out of our lives, all of that has been taken out of our social circle and setting, and instead there's peace and tranquility and harmony. But what we notice is, is if you're, once again, I, I want to remind you that everything we see in the Old Testament is physical representation of what we are experiencing in the New Testament church. And physically, despite the fact that they had moved into the promised land, that they were existing exactly where God had promised them that they would, and they had always looked forward to existing in, they still find themselves continually in conflict. Many times with outsiders, many times with uh, idolatry, and even here we see with insiders there is this presence, and not just presence, but prevalence of conflict. And sometimes in our Christian experience, we wish that there were no temptation. And we wish that there were no spiritual battles. And we wish that it was smooth sailing in living for the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see from typology here in the Old Testament that even when we're doing what God has called us to do, and even when we entered into arenas, that God has called us to enter into, very often we are going to continue to experience conflict. Hopefully it will not be physical conflict, warfare, swords being wielded, and blood being shed. But in a spiritual sense, there will continue to be conflict. So don't expect that someday in your spiritual walk there will not be any more temptation and there will not be any more questions and there will not be any more struggle and you'll never have to fight with the devil again. It's going to be conflict because when we enter into our rest, that's when we take our last breath. We pass away or when we're taken in the rapture, should the rapture come before your death then that is when the battle is over. That's when we've crossed over to the other side, over to, the, to heaven, where there'll be no more struggle, no more stress, no more pain, no more battle, no more tears. But in this life, just anticipate and expect it. In living for God, you can be pleasing God, you can be right where you're supposed to be, and there's going to continue to be conflict. Everybody nod your head if you, if you get the point. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be drama. But you know what? That's what makes life interesting. Um, I, you know, I think we would become bored living for God if there was not an antagonist. <laughs> if it weren't for the enemy. And, and it's almost, uh, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but this is what kind of enriches and gives texture and meaning to living for God is the fact that there are going to be challenges. There are going to be battles to fight. There are going to be 
but, but we're always advancing. We're always progressing. We're always taking more territory. But never does the devil finally just say, and our spiritual enemies, whether they're uh, uh, vices in the flesh or spiritual oppression, never do they just kind of lay down the, the, uh, the sword and say, okay, you've got me beat. There's going to be continuous conflict. Now, I said it makes life interesting. It makes life stressful. It makes life tough sometimes. But have you ever seen a play or a drama or a film or a show that did not have an element of conflict? See, because this is what makes for entertaining, for entertainment in the great uh, writings, the great novels of history. You're always going to have protagonists, antagonists. You're always going to have the foil. You're always going to have the person or the 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 uh, event that creates this conflict and this drama. Otherwise, it would be boring. Can you imagine just reading something about a person's everyday life? There was never any conflict or anything. It's just, I mean, number one, it's cheesy. Number two, it's unrealistic. And number three, you're like, where are these people living? It's not going to be interesting or intriguing. So there's got to be that element of conflict to keep us interested in a story. And in living for God and being a child of the Lord, there is going to be that resistance in our flesh against spiritual things. And, I, and I've always, you know, preaching and teaching Bible studies, I've thought, can I reach that point where my flesh is so crucified that it just stays dead? I want to reach that point where I, where I drive enough nails into my old carnal nature that I fasten it so effectively to an altar that I can get up and my flesh stays dead. But you know what? My flesh keeps getting up again. The devil keeps fighting me. The Apostle Paul had the same problem. He says, I have to die every day. In other words, I have to make a conscious decision to win the war against my flesh and the war against the enemy every single day. And so this is what we pick up from the book of Judges is that even though these are God's people and God's people are... Uh, in the right place, in the promised land, there is conflict and there's a need for people to remember. See, because if there isn't conflict, here's the problem. Everybody listening? Most of the time when the children of Israel in the promised land during the judges period faced conflict or warfare, it was because they needed revival. It was because they had gotten off track. They had fallen into the trap of idolatry. They weren't worshiping Jehovah as he had commanded them to. And oftentimes, conflict was what kept them honest, was what kept them focused, what kept them in the kingdom of God. So, so in this conflict against our flesh and against the enemy who works sometimes in, in co- cooperation with our flesh. You know what, you, you know what I'm saying? The, uh, the Apostle Paul said it this way. I want to do good. I know what's right, and I want to do it. But the things that I want to do, I end up doing what I don't want to do. That's what the Apostle Paul said. The good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. He's saying, in effect, I know what's right and I want to do what's right. But something is working inside of me causing me to do what I don't want to do. It's our flesh, but it's also the enemy with his temptations and his fiery darts, as the Scripture says, to, and his, effect to, his attempt to affect our thinking. And so our flesh and our mind, uh, our flesh and our mind comes under the influence of the enemy in an effort to keep us from being on the firing line and having our faith at a high level and being a witness and being a victorious, overcoming Christian. 
Now, here's the deal. There will continue to be conflict. Can we accept that? But God does expect us to be victorious. That doesn't mean God expects us never to encounter battle. But he empowers us and equips us with weapons of spiritual warfare that enable us to be victorious. See, that's why you've got to learn how to use your sword. Amen? As Christians, you can't be overcomers and victorious if your word's not very sharp. Yeah, I studied the Bible several years ago when I was a kid. I was in Bible quiz. And, well, you know what? That sword's dull by now. You need to get it out and sharpen it up again. Because this is a weapon of warfare, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Amen? Prayer is a weapon of warfare, and it makes the enemy tremble. Amen. These are weapons of warfare that we use. And as the children of Israel would have to take one time in the book of Judges, a weapon of warfare was the jawbone of a donkey. Another time you read in the book of Judges, a weapon of warfare was an ox goad or, or like a cruel implement for hurting animals, hurting them. And, and uh, Shamgar used this tool to, to defeat a great, uh, a great host. And so these were different implements and tools of warfare that, to the outsider, what's the jawbone of a donkey going to do? But he slew hundreds of Philistines with a jawbone. What's an ox goad going to do? But he fought off the enemy with it. It doesn't make sense uh, to the outsiders. It doesn't make sense even to the enemy. Look, this guy, he, he's coming after us with, a, he, he's coming after us with just a, a, an ox goad. We, we can easily defeat him. It doesn't make sense to outsiders. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty to God through the pulling down of strongholds, amen, and allowing us to see victory in people's lives through a, a, a victory in their minds and in their spirits. Praise the Lord. So the word of God and prayer and uh, 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 consecration and fellowship with other believers are great things that we can do to be overcomers. And I believe that one of the greatest weapons that we have, one of the most underrated weapons that we have in this conflict with the enemy is our praise and our worship. Sometimes we praise the Lord because it's expected of us. Sometimes we praise the Lord because it's the thing to do. But the Bible gives us several clues that our most power, or one of the most powerful weapons we have to confound the enemy and to defeat the enemy is our praise and our worship. Let's get into the story real quick. As we're reading through this portion of Judges, there's a a phrase that's repeated several times, and I, I noticed it, and I took note of it. Whenever you see something over and over in the Bible, it's time to take note of it. But the point in our Bible reading this week that kept coming up in Judges was, uh, the writer said, there was no king in Israel at this time. The people did that which was right in their own sight. Said that three or four times. So the people were kind of doing what, whatever they thought was right. And as a result, there was a lot of idolatry, false worship. In fact, the entire tribe of Dan got trapped into worshiping an idol, thinking that they were worshiping Jehovah. And so they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And there was much problems and sin that, that, that came in amongst them because there was no clear direction and no clear voice. But the story that precipitated Judah going first into battle was um, this story of this Levite who was unnamed in Scripture who had a concubine, which is not a combine, but it is a like a wife, but not really a wife. 
something that was acceptable in this time, but it's not acceptable today. Somebody said amen. And so it was one of his wives. And for whatever reason, she became upset or she was unfaithful to him. It's not clear in the context of Scripture. But she leaves him and goes back to her home in Bethlehem, Judah. And uh, while she's there, he begins to miss his concubine, and he says, I want to go back and I want to reclaim her. So he goes back to Bethlehem, Judah, back to the home where she was raised, back where his father still lives. And uh, while she is there, while he is there, the father-in-law is really friendly and kind to him. And so he's like, wow, this is cool. Uh, And uh, they have a great visit. And after each day in the visit, the next morning he gets up to go, and the father-in-law says, oh, come on, you can't leave without having a good meal. Why don't you eat with us? And so he's like, that sounds good. And uh, so he eats. And then after dinner, uh, he says, well, I better get going. And the father-in-law says, oh, man, it's too late now. There's no way you can get back home. Uh, uh, at this time, so why don't you stay another night? And this went on and on until the seventh day. And finally, he wakes up in the morning. I'm going today. Father-in-law says, oh, come on. You've got to eat dinner with us one more time again. And so he agrees to it. And he eats with them again. And his belly is full. He's feeling good. And he's like, come on, honey. We've got to go. I've come to get you. We're reconciled. Let's go back home. And uh, so, uh, so then... Uh, the father-in-law again says, oh, come on, you can spend the night again. But he says, no, we're going, we're going. But it's already too late, really, for him to leave. So they leave, and they're not able to get all the way home. And so they come into a village at dusk, and they're like, we can't make it home. We need a place to stay. There's no Motel 6. Super 8's booked up. And so we need a place to stay. So they already had provision and feed for their donkeys and everything they had all, everything that they would need so they would not if somebody were to provide them lodging it wouldn't cost them anything but they were sitting there in the town square and it's now getting dark and an old man comes through the town square and sees them sitting there says uh what are you guys doing it's dark it, it, it's like time to go to bed and uh, they said well our story is we've been in bethlehem and we're heading back to my hometown we can't make it tonight and we really don't have any lodging uh, but we've got all the provision this guy says oh come on you can come stay at my house so they go to his house he prepares them a dinner they're enjoying supper having a good time laughing and talking getting to know one another and all of a sudden a corrupt foul sinful group of male individuals that were from the tribe of benjamin in this city in this community that uh, had picked up the habits and the traditions of the Canaanites. And when you study the Canaanites in Scripture and in history, they were very, very perverse and sinful people, uh, particularly in the area of sexual immorality. And uh, that's why many of the commandments that God gave the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness were very strict on his expectations of sexual purity. Because he knew they were going into Canaan's land. God said, I'm, 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 I'm running these people out of Canaan's land because of their perversion and sin. Uh, even, even to the extreme of, of just being absolutely animalistic. Just 
flesh-oriented, fleshly-appetited-oriented, and going beyond the natural use into uh, um, homosexuality and even bestiality. This was the characteristic of these people in living in, in Canaan. And it was dis- disgusting to God. It was an uh, abomination. It made him sick, literally, is what the Bible says. And so as uh, um, these Benjaminites, which were of, of Abraham's seed, but they had been corrupted by the Canaanites and had become so fleshly appetite-oriented that they had become animals interested in only fulfilling their sexual passions and desires. Long ago, leaving the natural use, one man, one woman, in monogamous relationships, they were now coming to this house because they heard there was a new man that was visiting in town. And this group of men began to pound on the door of the house. Say, hey, buddy, I know you're in there. I know you got a visitor. I want you to send him out so we can do sinful things. Probably not what they said, but it's our terminology. And uh, so uh, the man in the house knew that this would be very, very, very uh, terrible, and it would bring a curse on the land that if he took a guest that was under his roof and sent him out to be abused and misused by these perverse men. And so um, uh, it, this was their way of dealing with it. From our perspective, it's horrific. But he says, do not do this because it will bring a curse on us and on our family. He said, but I, I do have a daughter in the house who's never known a man, and this guy happens to have a concubine with him. We'll, we'll give them to you, and you guys can do whatever you want to with them. Just don't do this evil to this man that's come through. And you can see, of course, the uh, uh, extreme uh, 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 sexist perspective here. But uh, So what they did is the guy said, no, that's not going to work. And finally, they just pushed the ladies out there. And uh, these men were so animalistic that they abused these women all night long. And at the end, when the morning came, this concubine who he had just gone to get, just spent seven nights with her dad, she's laying at the door. And he comes out and says, get up. But she's dead. She's been abused so profoundly that she's dead. And uh, so this man is so infuriated. This man is so overwhelmed, not just for his personal loss, but because of the sin that's now prevalent in Israel. Remember I said no king, people doing what's right in their own eyes, and they're getting totally off track. And so he says, I'm going to deal with this. And he dealt with it in a very gory way to make his point. He took her body and it into 12 pieces and sent a piece of the body to each of the 12 tribes of Israel to get their attention and say, come on, we need to get together and we need to deal with this problem in Benjamin because the Benjaminites who once understood truth and once were obedient to God's law have become so perverse and so extreme in their uh, sin that they're a scourge upon Israel. So that's what precipitated this story. They gathered together. They're trying to decide. You know, we've never had to do this. We've never fought against our own people before. But this is something that has to be dealt with. And so they went to God at Bethel, this place where Jacob's ladder was first uh, uh, represented up and down, of the angels coming up and down. So they're there, and they're asking God, what do we do? Who do we send first into this battle to purge and to cleanse? And God speaks to them directly. And the word that we got was, 
God said, send Judah first into the battle. Of all the tribes of Israel, the 11 tribes that would be coming against Benjamin, God said, I want you to send Judah first into the battle. And some may say, well, that was because uh, the woman who was abused was uh, from Bethlehem, which is in Judah, so she must have been from the tribe of Judah. Others would say, well, it's because it was the largest of the tribes in terms of fighting men. But I believe there's some significance because I see the position of uh, preeminence or prominence of Judah time and again. I was, as I was studying this, as I was studying this today, I could not believe how many times Judah is presented in the position of prominence. The first mention of Judah in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 35, this is the first time Judah is ever mentioned in Scripture. Judah is mentioned 823 times in Scripture. This is the first time. And if you count the word Jew or Jews, which is also descendants of Judah or people of Judah, it's uh, into the multiple thousands of times that it's mentioned in Scripture. But Genesis 29 35, this is the first time. And she conceived again, speaking of Leah, uh, Jacob's wife Leah, and bare a son. And she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Therefore means because she says, I will praise the Lord. She says, Therefore, she called his name Judah and left bearing and stopped having children for a while. So she'd had three children. The first was Reuben, which means God hath seen. The second was Simeon, which means God hath heard. The third was Levi, which means God, which means to join together. She was saying, you know, she was knowing that even though she was bearing children, that she was still not connected emotionally to her husband. And Reuben means God hath seen my the fact that I was hated while my sister was loved. Simeon means God hath heard. What's God heard? Well, God has heard how I was hated. Levi joined together. Maybe she, she, she thought maybe with this child, God will take my husband and I who are not connected and join us together. But with the fourth child, she realized finally, you know what? God's blessing me, and I don't know that it's ever going to get any better between me and my husband, but I'm not going to gripe or complain about it any longer. I'm going to praise the Lord. And the Bible says, therefore, she called his name Judah. Because she said, I'm going to praise the Lord. The word praise there means to physically demonstrate appreciation and thanksgiving. It doesn't mean just to be thankful in your mind, but it means to physically demonstrate it with your hands and and, uh, uh, to, to make a demonstration of gratitude and thanksgiving. She said, I will praise the Lord. So I'm going to name him Judah. Interestingly enough, this is the first time Judah is mentioned in Scripture, and it is also the first time the word praise is mentioned in Scripture. The first time the word praise is mentioned is the first time Judah is mentioned. And Judah means to praise or to celebrate physically in a demonstrative manner. And there's something about this name of this child that was significant. Now, you know in the Old Testament, names meant something. They were significant because they spoke words of prophecy and declarations about the life of the child that was born. And the key was Judah means praise. Judah means to celebrate. Judah means to express and demonstrate gratitude. And so she said, I'm going to name him Judah. This is the first reference of praise and the first reference of the word Judah. Now, uh, in Genesis chapter 48 and 28, when the tribes of Israel went into, uh, 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 this is the first time we see Judah going first. Now, Judah's grown up now. And... uh, they're going into Egypt. Remember the story of uh, Joseph went before them, and then the brothers came in, 
And finally, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and said, go get dad. I want you guys to come live in Egypt and you can live off the fat of the land. The Bible says that as they were getting close, that the father, um, that their father Jacob said, or Israel said, he, in, in verse 28 of Ch- Genesis chapter 46, he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. So here we see another, uh, the, the first example of Judah being sent first, uh, being sent ahead of them as they went into a new territory, into a new land that they weren't uh, uh, familiar with. And then when uh, uh, the father gave the, the, the blessings to his children, when it came to Judah, even though he was the firstborn, he received the blessing of the firstborn, even though he was the fourthborn. He received the blessing of the firstborn. Judy, your brothers will praise you. Once again, this is the second time praise is ever mentioned in Scripture, and it's associated with Judah because Judah means to praise and to celebrate. So he took this play to words again and said, Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will defeat your enemies. Your relatives will bow before you. goes on and on. Judah is a young lion that's just finished devouring his prayer. He washes his clothes in wine. His eyes are darker than wine. And uh, his teeth are whiter than milk. So it was a great, a positive blessing that was given by the Father to Judah. And then in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, So the total of all the troops on Judah's side of the camp is 186,400. These three tribes are to lead the way whenever the Israelites travel to a new campsite. Who's out front? Whenever they move from one campsite to another during their wilderness wandering, it was Judah. And two other tribes that went with them, but Judah was the one that led the way. Every time they went into new territory, Judah led the way. Is anybody noticing a trend here? It said, Judah, you go first into Egypt when it was just the boy, the the, the young man, Judah. But now it's the whole tribe. And now the whole tribe, which is under the representative banner and name of praise and celebration, he says, I want you to go first. Whenever we go from one place to another, as we're following the glory cloud, you lead the way to the new uh, campsite. And uh, Numbers 10 and 13, when the time to move arrived, the Lord gave the order through Moses. The tribes that camped with Judah headed the march or led the march with their banner. So we're seeing through history. Now, uh, uh, a few years later, uh, Judges chapter 1, verse 1, after Joshua dies, says, Joshua died, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should attack the Canaanites first? And the Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them the victory over the land. Now understand, whenever they went into battle, it was a physical battle. And it was Judah that went first because Judah had profound power and favor with God. This tribe of, of, uh, uh, of Israelites uh, were the ones that were favored and were sent first uh, into battle. And I believe there is some representative understanding that whenever we're engaged in spiritual battle against our carnal nature and against the uh, powers of wickedness in high places, uh, that the first wave into the battle, whenever the enemy is oppressing, whenever you're depressed and discouraged, whenever you feel the enemy come in like a flood, the first wave of offense against the enemy is Judah. We've got to send up Judah first into the battle. Whenever we got to take new territory, whenever we want to go into areas we've never been before, whenever God is leading us into a new venture and a new endeavor, we've got to send up Judah first. 
Let me tell you something. When a church starts losing their fervency in praise, I don't care what new innovations they're going into. If they're not sending up Judah first, they're going in the wrong direction, and they're not obeying God, and they're going to lose. The... If we want to be victorious, if we want to be overcomers in life, church, we've got to understand that the Scripture says that praise and worship to God is preeminent. Praise and worship to God goes first before any other efforts before any other strategies of battle, we've got to be worshipers and praisers. Judges 1.19 says the Lord was with the people of Judah. And they took possession of the hill country. And then the passage of scripture that we read in Judges chapter 20 verse 18. Before the battle, the Israelites went to Bethel and asked God which tribe should lead the attack against the people of Benjamin. And the Lord answered, Judah to go first. How many times have we seen that in Scripture? And then there's one member from the tribe of Judah that finally ascended to the throne as had been predicted all the way back in the book of Genesis. And that was a man who was once a shepherd boy who received the anointing as a shepherd who was known for writing songs and playing cunningly on his harp. And when he wrote songs, he didn't write about uh, his girlfriend leaving him. And he didn't write songs about uh, 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 all the things that uh, secular people would write about. But whenever David got the harp, uh, hallelujah, praise began to bubble out of his spirit. And tears began to flow down his face. Uh, I love the Lord with all my heart. Uh, He is a mighty tower. In times of trouble, I run to him. He's always there to protect and comfort me. And as he strummed the strings of the harp... From his lips couldn't help it. It flowed out of him because David was a man. David wasn't a perfect man. David had sins and failures and weaknesses, but he was a man of praise. You know why? Because he was a man of Judah, which means to praise and to celebrate. And God said the scepter of authority will not depart from the tribe of Judah. Let me tell you something. In our church, from the first song to the final amen, let there be something inside of us that says we have not come to fulfill obligations. We've not come to punch the time card and say we've been to church, but we've come to physically demonstrate our appreciation and our gratitude to the Lord. Because if we want to win victories, if we want to be overcomers, we've got to learn to send Judah first into the battle. Come on, clap your hands and praise the Lord. Then in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 20, I love this passage. Early the next morning, the army of Judah, everybody say Judah, went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And on the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, listen to me, all you people of Judah, everybody say Judah, and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. Verse 21. After consulting the leaders of the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army. Not behind the army, but ahead. Now, tell me this is not untraditional warfare. Who's going to be at the front lines, the most skilled sword handlers, the most athletic and agile and quickest But no, these people are up here without swords. They're up front with musical instruments. 
God said, uh, after consulting the leaders, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising. Everybody say praising. And praising him for his holy splendor. And this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. The armies behind with their swords and their spears. And up front are some singers who are singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. They're shouting, waving their arms, no doubt dancing before the Lord. Tears streaming down their face as they sing, Give thanks to the Lord, for His love endures forever. And I want you to listen to what the Bible says next. Verse 22. At the moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir to start fighting amongst themselves. At the moment that they began to sing, the Lord caused these opposing armies to begin to fight amongst the themselves. Verse 23, the armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. After they had finished off the army of Seir, they turned on each other. So here comes the army of Israel with Judah. Leading the way with singers and worshipers and praisers. And they come up over the hill where they anticipate seeing the enemy. Verse 24. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, there were dead bodies lying on the ground for as far as they could see. Not a single one of their enemy had escaped. Come on now. King Jehoshaphat and his men went out to gather the plunder. They found vast amounts of equipment, clothing, and other valuables, more than they could carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days just to collect it all. On the fourth day, they, ca- they gathered in the Valley of Blessing. Somebody say blessing. The Valley of Blessing, which got its name that day because the people praised and thanked the Lord there. It is still called the Valley of Blessing today. There is a reason in these Old Testament battles that God said send Judah first into the battle because God knew there would be a New Testament church established in Pasadena against whom the enemy would array his tactics and his warfare and his efforts. And he knew that we would need to understand that the greatest weapon that we have that has power to confound the enemy and turn Satan's forces against one another is our worship and our praise to the Lord because He is worthy. I wonder if we could stand to our feet and begin to clap our hands and give praise to the Lord for He is worthy. Anybody want to confuse the devil? 
Come on, those old spirits that have been bothering you and oppressing you, you want to confuse the devil? He's not going to know what's happening as you begin to lift up your voice, as you begin to physically demonstrate your appreciation to the Lord. Come on, I've come to confuse sickness. Come on, I come into this house, and I have come to confuse and confound despair and depression. I've come to confuse the tactics of the enemy that he's trying to use in my life. Oh, come on. When the Spirit of the Lord moves on my heart, I will sing like David. When the Spirit of the Lord moves on my heart, I will shout like David. Not because they're singing my favorite song, but because Jesus is worthy of my praise. And if I'm going to win the battle, I've got to learn. My first line of offense is my praise. Hey, man, I've seen it before. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? You come into the house of the Lord. And there are people that are unbelievers. There are skeptics that have had their arm twisted to be in church with us. And they come and we know that they're not satanic or devil possessed, but they're just locked up in the world system, perhaps. But when they come into the house of the Lord... They're just like cool with it. Everybody doing it. They're just hanging out and playing the part. But when the thunder begins to roll, and when God's people abandon their inhibitions and decide they don't care what anybody thinks, and when it begins to rock and move in praise and worship to the Lord, there's a confused look. And it's not just confusion because they've never been in a church like that. Because no doubt they've been in situations that were similar, whether it's in a ball stadium or whether it's in a, in, in, in a festive atmosphere. They've been around that before, but they've never felt what they're feeling. And those spirits that are oppressing them, those things that have their minds twisted in turn, begin to become confounded and confused. And I'm telling you, I've come into the house of the Lord depressed. And I thought it was just because I was down, but the devil was trying to take my joy. The devil was trying to steal my passion. The devil was trying to steal my faith. But when I came into the house of the Lord, and when God's people begin to praise the Lord, and when I begin to lift up my voice and clap my hands, that thing, I could feel feel it stirring. I could feel it breaking. Hakataya bohosala. Woo! Hakataya boshanda. Come on, Life Church. When we come in here on Sunday, I know we're in a sermon series. I know we're going to be preaching on practical things. But from the first song, I challenge those of you that are here tonight. To come into the house of the Lord and bring your sacrifice of praise. 
I want you to walk in here with an understanding. When we start our service, before we get into our rhetoric, and before we try to flow in the anointing, we've got to send up Judah first. And that is we've got to begin to praise and magnify and glorify the Lord. We need to forget about who's there, about who's looking at us, and what they might think. But let us just begin to lift up our voice. Hey, it doesn't make sense to the enemy. Hey, it doesn't make sense to this world. But the Lord is worthy of our praise. His mercy is everlasting. Psalmist David in the final psalm says, praise the Lord. Praise him in his sanctuary. Can I get an amen? Praise him for his uh, praise him in his mighty heaven. Praise him for his mighty works. Praise his unequaled greatness. Praise him with the blast of the ram's horn. Praise him with the lyre and the harp. Praise him with the tambourine. And dancing. Praise Him with the strings and the flutes. Praise Him with the clash of the cymbals. Praise Him with the loud clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Come on, somebody. Lift up your voice right now. Come on, somebody. Wave your hands right now. Jesus is worthy of the praise. And we're confounding the enemy. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, come on, somebody. You feel like praising the Lord? Hallelujah. 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 Because I feel like it and I like what I feel, we're just going to praise the Lord for a couple of moments. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord. If you need to leave, we're just going to praise the Lord in song for a second here now. We're going to praise Him for a second. You're dismissed. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord tonight. But somebody feels like offering up a sacrifice of praise, not because you have to, not because you're obligated to, but because you know that if I'm going to be a winner, if I'm going to be victorious, hallelujah, I need to forget about my strategy for a minute. I need to forget about all the things I've been trying to figure out for a minute, and I just need to send up some praise first. Hey, could it be that you don't need a strategy? All you need is praise. Could it be that you'll come to the lookout point and all those things that have been daunting you will be dead bodies in the name of the Lord because of the power of praise lift it up to him oh victory is mine oh victory is mine victory today is mine oh I told Satan get thee behind cause victory today is mine oh oh Joy is mine, joy is mine, 
mine. Yes, peace is mine. Peace today is mine. Oh, I told Satan, get thee behind, cause peace today is mine. Oh, victory is mine. Oh, victory is mine. Victory today is mine. I told Satan, you better get thee behind. Victory today is mine. Oh, joy is mine. Joy is mine. Joy today is mine. Oh, I told Satan, get thee behind. Joy today is mine. Deliverance is mine. Deliverance is mine. Deliverance today is mine. Oh, I told Satan, get thee behind. Deliverance today is mine. Oh, peace is mine. Peace is mine. Peace today is mine. I told Satan, get thee behind. Peace today is mine. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to do something real fun. Somebody run down and get Carlos, our, our, our drummer from the Spanish service. Somebody run down and get Carlos real quick. Is he here? Is he in church tonight? Carlos? Somebody run and get him. Say we're going to sing a Spanish song real quick. There you go, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Somebody fleet of foot. Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to praise the Lord Latino style for just a minute. Anybody feel like that? Hallelujah. Everybody praises the Lord different. Sometimes in Russia they praise the Lord in a certain way. And then... The United States, and then uh, everybody loves going to a black church and really getting down and grooving with the music. And uh, I love also to sing Latino style and worship the Lord in Latino style music because it's a little bit different and it sets your feet to dance. And anybody feel like dancing? Hallelujah! We're not doing this just to just to uh, uh, waste time, but we're doing it to give praise and worship and glory to the Lord. Hallelujah! You ready? Me diste tanto amor, no alcanzo a comprender, diste tu vida por mí. No sé cómo agradecerte, solo puedo alabarte y adorarte, haciéndolo así. Oh, me diste tanto amor, no alcanzo a comprender, diste tu vida por mí. No sé cómo agradecerte, solo puedo alabarte y adorarte, haciéndolo así. Oh, Señor, yo te agradezco danzando, por tu sangre te adoro danzando, te alabo eternamente tu presencia. Oh, danzando, Señor, yo te agradezco danzando, por tu sangre te adoro danzando, te alabo eternamente tu presencia. Oh, 
y toda lengua confesar ante Él es Jesucristo Dios por siempre no, no quiero parar de alabarte, no, no quiero parar de alabarte, no, no quiero parar de alabarte, Cristo. Oh, oh no, no quiero parar de alabarte, no, no quiero parar de alabarte, no, no quiero parar de alabarte, Cristo. No, adiós. No a Dios, no a Dios, como mi Dios, maravilloso, maravilloso, maravilloso es el Señor. No a Dios, no a Dios, no a Dios, como mi Dios, maravilloso, Él es maravilloso, maravilloso es el Señor. Oh, como he de expresar. La gratitud que hay en mi ser para Dios, mi Redentor, quien me restauró. Yo no era nada cuando Él me tomó y ahora yo soy un príncipe de su pueblo. Un príncipe de su pueblo, un príncipe de su pueblo, no a Dios, oh no a Dios, no a Dios, como mi Dios, maravilloso es, maravilloso, maravilloso es el Señor, no a Dios, no a Dios, no a Dios, como mi Dios. Maravilloso, maravilloso, maravilloso es el Señor. Oh, cómo he de expresar la gratitud que hay en mi ser para Dios, mi Redentor, quien me restauró. Yo no era nada cuando Él me tomó. Y ahora yo soy un príncipe de su pueblo, un príncipe de su pueblo, un príncipe de su pueblo. No a Dios, oh no a Dios, no a Dios, como mi Dios, maravilloso, eres maravilloso, maravilloso es el Señor, no a Dios, oh no a Dios, no a Dios, como mi Dios, maravilloso, tú eres maravilloso, maravilloso, es el Señor, no a Dios, no a Dios, no a Dios, como mi Dios, maravilloso, eres maravilloso, maravilloso es el Señor Hallelujah, God bless you, dismissed in Jesus' name Hallelujah, leave rejoicing leave rejoicing, Hallelujah